the Ain't No Fang podcast. From Arizona Sports, Ain't No Fang. What sort of things do you learn about your baseball team when you're facing the best team in the National League? Well, the Diamondbacks actually didn't just come out unscathed. They came out with a win in the series. I'm Steve Zinsmeister with Alex Weiner, covers the team for ArizonaSports.com. The Diamondbacks just got done with the Atlanta Braves this week. All things considered, pretty phenomenal series to watch, both from an offense perspective. There was one of the best offensive games I think I've ever watched, not just from the Diamondbacks perspective, but there were like six lead changes, 29 runs or something like that. 29 runs. Most in a game this year. So all things considered, that Braves series was really fun. It was spectacular. It was intense. Every single game like could have flipped on a dime, essentially, especially that first game and then the last game. Diamondbacks had a little bit more control in that second game, but in the ninth inning, when Kevin Ginkle walks over Acuna, wild pitch, he scores, tying runs at the plate, it's like, oh my gosh, are we going to do this? Just one of these games has to go to extra innings, right? Spectacular series. Really fun to watch. And for the D-backs to, coming off of a sweep where they really didn't look like themselves, or at least the best version of themselves at all in Toronto. It was a very bizarre series to watch. To come into Atlanta that very next game and put on the show that they did when falling behind 5-2, to two, and then they fell behind again, and then again, there was six lead changes in that game. Uh, it it kind of showed that the team that was the answer backs for so much of the season, it's still there. It's not like this, you know, fall off or anything like that. They're still there. So that was a really, really promising sign to see in my opinion, and then it continued into the next game. It was kind of back and forth early. They jump out to a multi-run lead, able to hold on to it. Kevin Ginkle gets the second save, and then with the finale, it's tough to leave that one on the table when Gallon was so good. When the offense was up, they were leading by multiple runs. Uh, it just some poor execution in the eighth inning from Miguel Castro, and that was it, but uh, ultimately, I think you take it. The three and three against the Braves on the season. I know a couple of those losses were were gut punches, but man, that was an unbelievable series. The last one was also a crazy good series, but this one blew it out of the water. It's never easy to play the best team in your league at any point in the season, but I do feel that this was a pivotal part of the season for the Diamondbacks to play the Braves again because I think it was one of those tests where it really resets your standards. What are we right now? And if you're the Diamondbacks, you've probably been asking yourself that question for the last couple of weeks, like the last week to two weeks, but going into the the All-Star break. break And then, yeah, because they kind of faltered. I mean, the offense practically went away. They were averaging under three runs a game at one point. Um, And you go into the break and you feel good that, you know, you sent four guys to Seattle for the All-Star game. That's good and everything. Uh, Zach Allen's the starter. Corbin Carroll's in the outfield, but he also had that weird shoulder injury, but he didn't miss any time. So there was a lot of back and forth. Like, are we good? Are we are we hurt? Are we not good? Um, And Kelly being on the I.L. for this time. Right. Yeah, there was a lot of by Toronto. So all of a sudden, we're sitting here and everyone's panicking, like, maybe this isn't a team that needs to go out and acquire a bunch of names at the trade deadline. Are we even ready to be contenders? So this series against Atlanta was a real test of what are we right now? And to see them win two games against Atlanta, listen, this isn't the playoffs. The playoffs don't start today. There's a lot of baseball before that happens. And the Braves, you better believe, will be there. The Diamondbacks, I hope, will be there. But this felt like a playoff series to me, and it really helps you evaluate. I'm sure it helped the organization evaluate and feel, confirm a little bit that they can go out and make some moves at the trade deadline, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But at a time when you're questioning a lot of things about your team, 
getting two out of three wins against the best team in your league is pretty much the confirmation I needed that they are going to be okay. I think that's some key keen insight because I think you're absolutely right. When Because there's 10 games, 9 games, 10 games, something like that. Depends when you listen to this. Until the trade deadline is here. And Mike Hazen has already said there's still, I know it's like next week, but there's still a lot to kind of unfold before they get there to decide what exactly they're going to do. How, they want to be aggressive. How aggressive does that look like? And if they get swept by Toronto, lose two out of three to the Braves, lose two out of three to the Reds, and all of a sudden they're approaching the deadline five games back of the division, six games back of the division, it looks a little bit different in how aggressive exactly you can be. By beating the Braves, I mean, this. the Braves, sure, not a great start for them out of the All-Star break. They had that series against the White Sox where they stumbled a little bit, but this is the best team in baseball. And you look at the lineup, almost everybody is an All-Star, they went up against Bryce Elder, an all-star, Charlie Morton, who's been an all-star, Spencer Strider, who was an all-star this year and is a Cy Young candidate right there with Zach Gallen. They faced the best version of the Braves as far as the players are concerned, and they come out with two out of three, probably should have swept that series. I think that says a lot. Uh, I think it's the work's not done. If they lose two out of three to Cincinnati, I think that kind of knocks you down a peg a little bit. So this is a big upcoming series against the Reds team that, similar to the Diamondbacks' offense, has faltered a little bit coming uh, right out of the All-Star break. So winnable series, especially when you look at the pitching, because it's not very certain on either side at this point, that's going to be a big series to continue this momentum push forward. So very good sign, but it's got to keep going. Uh, To focus on Spencer Strider for just a second, Mm -hmm. because you talked about him as a Cy Young candidate, his ERA is like 3.78, which is by no means bad. It's just not usually the number you expect from a Cy Young candidate. The reason he's a Cy Young candidate is because he, unlike anyone else in the game of baseball right now, is just a strikeout master. He's unbelievable when it comes to striking batters out. He's leading all of Major League Baseball with 189 strikeouts. The next highest is Kevin Gosman, who's also had a really, really good year. 153. 36 strikeouts behind the leader in all of baseball. You want a stat? He has 354 strikeouts in his first 40 starts, which is the most by any pitcher since the 1800s. Jeez. Per ESPN Stats and Info. And, and we saw it yesterday, I mean... He looked unhittable for most of the game. I mean, until sort of everything came apart in the seventh inning and he walks Corbin Carroll, hits Christian Walker, the command's not quite there, and then Dominic Canzone had what would have been the story of the day, the go-ahead home run against Spencer Strider and for his first career home run had the rest of the game not occurred. But for most of that game, I mean, just the slider-fastball combination, heaters up, up and in, up and away, depending on the batter, that slider low in the dirt, I mean, it was really, really nasty stuff, and he was really, really sharp. So, yeah, him and Gallon, just to kind of go off of that pitcher's duel a little bit, kind of showed exactly who they are for most of that game. Gallon, he wasn't getting swings and misses on every single pitch, but he was getting outs working really, really efficiently and was perfect through five innings against the top-scoring team in the National League. He, again, kind of like Striders, but a little bit better. The final line, seven innings, three earned runs, very good start. Doesn't sound elite, but he was elite, and that was a heck of a duel until we got to the seventh inning there and turned into a burner. And this, was this his first start since the All-Star break? No, second, right? For... For, for both Gallen. of them, for both of them, it was the second. Yeah, game. so July fifteenth was Gallon's first one back. Five innings, three earned runs. This one, seven innings, three earned runs, like you talked about. 
um, both of those being on the road as well. I know that they both go down as losses, you know, for the team, but Zach Allen's still doing Zach Allen things. And it, it still baffles me that he's probably the leader in the clubhouse for, for the Cy Young at this point. I mean, he's in that conversation probably with Clayton Kershaw, but he's been injured for a couple of yeah, weeks. Yeah, Kershaw's missed a lot of time. So if Gallon is the leading candidate, it's really just amazing to me how different of a pitcher he's been home and on the road. We've talked about this quite a bit, right? So you've walked me through your th- feelings on this. You know, he had a couple rough starts, especially at the beginning of the season that weighed those numbers down. But think about if Zach Gallon had just been an average starting pitcher on the road for the majority of the season or slightly above average, his season would be unbelievable right now. And it's already the best season of any starting pitcher in the National League. And then you've got Spencer Strider striking out two plus hitters per inning, which is just unbelievable. So to see those two guys face each other in that series was something that I know it was intimidating for a lot of people, but I had so much fun watching that series. It was unbelievable. And I know we're going to talk about the next series, which is the Reds. And this is the last series in the, in the road trip, but man, the Reds are just as exciting, if not more so than the Braves, because they're an unknown commodity. We know the Braves are good. They've won the World Series. We know how good they are. They won the World Series without their best player. And now they have their best player. He's the best player in baseball in Ronald Acuna Jr. And they've got this pitching staff, and they've got a great bullpen, and they've got all these exciting things about them. Like you said, (laughs) they have an injured bullpen. (laughs) Well, true. Their whole lineup is filled with all-stars, and the the two guys in their lineup that aren't all-stars are on pace for like 25 to 30 home runs. Um, So we know what the, the Braves are, but then the Reds are the next series for the Diamondbacks starting today. And that one's fascinating on many levels. Ellie De La Cruz is obviously getting most of the headlines. He broke the record for hardest infield throw in the StatCast era, which is pretty phenomenal. He broke his own record. Right, yeah, he already had the record, I guess, but he broke the record again um, while playing third base. He plays shortstop sometimes. When McLean was sitting yesterday, uh, he could probably play second base if they needed him to, but they have They need to keep that arm on the the left side of the infield. That's a good point. And so they've got Spencer Steer, who's been fantastic. I, I mentioned McLean. Uh, they've got Jonathan India, who's still quite good. They just brought up Encarnacion, Christian Encarnacion Strand, who had another a home top, run, another top one hundred guy. So this is a yeah. a a battle of young talent. And the Reds have more young talent contributing on the major league roster right now than the Diamondbacks, just from a numbers perspective. Because you look at that lineup; it's rookie, rookie, rookie. Jonathan India, Joey Votto, rookie, rookie. It, it's incredible how many guys have come up this year for them and have produced i mean you mentioned them well we can have like a corbin carroll ellie de la cruz what makes them so special conversation here in a second but because there's a lot about both of those two players and when the pitching staffs i mean the the d-backs gonna rely on youth tommy henry's gonna get the first game probably brandon fought is expected to get the second game and so those guys are going to go up against younger players and it's just going to be an interesting kind of look into the window of like okay Young team, young team, at this point in the season, battling for position, probably a little bit ahead of schedule. What do they look like in this kind of environment? And it's going to be in a hitter-friendly ballpark with you know, not a ton of certainty pitching-wise. This could be fireworks. So you wrote something at ArizonaSports.com about comparing and contrasting Ellie De La Cruz and Corbin Carroll and where they're at. Obviously, Cruz came up middle of this season. Carroll came up end of last season. Uh, Carroll is certainly my pick as Rookie of the Year. He, he should, should be, be most people's. He should be everybody's. Yeah. yeah, he's been an MVP candidate so far. Ellie De La Cruz just isn't. He just hasn't been up as long. And maybe if he came up on day one, maybe he'd be in that conversation, but he's not. Um, 
But I feel like Ellie De La Cruz, it's funny, I, I mentioned this on my Saturday show a couple weeks ago. I threw it out there. Who would you rather have? If you were like building a, a franchise from scratch, would you rather have Ellie De La Cruz or Corbin Carroll? Corbin. Now, <laughs> and, and like what you just said, in this market, I assumed most of the feedback I would get is, come on, man. Like Corbin Carroll's been doing it longer. He's been the top prospect in baseball. All these things, right? I got so much backlash, I guess is the word. I got so many Reds fans hitting me up saying, how could you not pick Ellie De La Cruz? Hmm. Even some people who are just general baseball fans who are like, look at Ellie. He's six foot five. He's an infielder. He's the fastest man in baseball. Only slightly faster than Corbin Carroll, by the way. I, we need a race. We, uh, yeah. That, you know what? This series, we need Corbin Carroll to go first to third and Ellie De La Cruz to go first to third. And, and time it out. Time it Just see it. Because they run so differently and it's so fun to watch. With Corbin, his feet, he's five foot ten. Ellie is... Six foot five. Right. But his feet move a mile a minute. It just looks like he's like gliding. It doesn't even look like he's running. Yeah. And then with Ellie, it's just long strides. And he just covers so much ground that it's amazing to watch both of them go. I mean, as athletes, these are two of the most special players that we have playing in the game right now and what they can do. And it looks different. You know, they have different body types. They do things differently. They play different positions. But both of them provide so much that we don't really see on an everyday basis with a lot of teams. Corbin, we've been seeing it all year. He can get to third base on a drop third strike. He can score from first base on a single up the middle. He can get to almost every ball in the outfield. And with De La Cruz, he can hit light tower power from both sides of the plate. He's had already show-stopping moments, and both of them have. Corbin has two walk-off hits. Ellie hit for the cycle in his 15th game in an 11-10 ball game against the Braves. He had that moment, if you remember, against the Nationals with uh, Dave Martinez having them check his bat. And, and then, then hit a home run. He hits a home run, yeah. points to the knob of the bat, and before he drops it and runs right. around the bases. so He's flashy. He's flashy. He's flashy, sure. but it's great. And he's been a very good player. This lightest stretch hasn't been as good. He's been striking out a lot, hitting a lot of ground balls, and it hasn't been... Uh, since the All-Star break, he's been in a funk. So that's the thing. I, I, not to... I don't know, not to lessen his abilities because we know how good he can be. Yeah. His OPS plus is 100, which is league average. Yeah. He's hitting 279. Not bad. Uh, on base, 321. Eh. He's got four home runs, which for a guy who has light tower power is really not that much, all things considered. He's got 165 plate appearances, so it's not like he hasn't been up for you know too long. It's been less than 40 games, though. 51 strikeouts, 10 walks. So yeah, that's... I, I'm not trying to say Ellie De La Cruz is a bad player. I'm just saying if we're going to have the argument between him and Corbin Carroll, Corbin's doing some special things, and Ellie De La Cruz has had his moments. You talk about the Dave Martinez mm-hmm. thing, hitting for the cycle, breaking the record for hardest throw. These are all very flashy things. Ellie De La Cruz is the kind of guy to show up to the ballpark wearing a T-shirt with his own face on it, <laughs> and he has done that already. Corbin Carroll is the kind of guy to get dropped off on day one by his mother <laughs> and to not talk about himself. Terrific, yeah. It, I think it's the way it is. That's absolutely right. I mean, Corbin is the more polished player right now, and that makes perfect sense. He had a cup of coffee last year. He's played the entire season this year so far. It, injury scares and all. He's played not every game, but most the or most every game. A lot. And then three hundred and seventy six played appearances. Yeah. De La Cruz came up in the middle of this year. He's twenty one years old. This is his first attempt. So there's going to be more kinks to work out for for De La Cruz. You're right. It's a lot of flashes of brilliance and brilliant moments. Too many strikeouts, too many ground balls right now. But man, these two guys could be the faces of baseball in five years. I think that that's probably what's going to happen here. And this is the first time we get to see them on the field together. And I just can't wait for kind of 
what kind of special moment we could potentially get from this. Well, and we know that baseball falls in love with Ellie De La Cruz's type of player. Not that he's exactly the same as these two guys, but the last two I can think of that were shortstops, that were big guys, tons of power, throw hard, um, kind of flashy players. It's O'Neill Cruz in Pittsburgh, who still has yet to come into his own, I believe. He's been hurt. But yeah, he's been hurt. Which is such a shame. I know. And I'd love to see more of him. But O'Neill Cruz is in that conversation. uh, Just so happens to kind of share a name with Ellie De La Cruz. And then Fernando Tatis Jr., who certainly has gone through more things since then with the whole suspension and all that. But originally, that's kind of the trajectory he was on. He was fast. He was stealing bases that people didn't expect. He swipes home every now and then. He's throwing extremely hard, albeit he doesn't really have an accurate arm. Uh, now he's in the outfield, so I guess it's a little bit different. But he's already got his $300 million, so he doesn't need to be in that conversation anymore. He's established at this point. So I do think Ellie De La Cruz is the type of player that this sport falls in love with these days. Corbin Carroll doesn't have a lot of comps. I mean, like, uh, name another left-handed hitting, uber-fast, kind of short outfielder. Cedric Mullins? I mean, is that the best comp? I mean, there's not a lot of these guys out there. No, not with the frame, but, I mean, that's just... But can still hit for pop? Yeah. And hits most of his homers the other way? I mean, Opposite field power. Yeah, just line drives on the left field wall. I don't know. There isn't one. Cedric Mullins is kind of a pole hitter, so I don't even know if that's a good comp. No, I think you'd have to. We'd have to like brainstorm for it. I, off the top of my head, I don't know. We'd have to brainstorm it for like an hour to be like. Oh, it's yeah, a I more rare him. player like, at this point. I, you can make the argument that Elliot uh, Cruz has I think all. They're the, both pretty dang rare. I just mean. I mean, I just named you two or three players that I feel are Elliot De Cruz in is a the Elliot De La hitter, Cruz. Though. Yes, that's different. That's true. He's hitting better that's from true. the left side than the right side right now, but that wasn't the case in the minors. So if that evens out, then from for him to have that ability on both sides of the plate, that's different, and. I mean, he's already playing multiple positions on the left side of the infield. Granted, it doesn't sound like the biggest deal in the world, but for a younger player, that's that's some of that is necessity, though. Sure, because the Reds have think about the Matt McClain's already a shortstop. Yeah, that's true. But also think about like Corbin Carroll has to play every outfield position, and that's something that gets overlooked in how great he's been. But that's really hard, especially when you go to different ballparks and the angles are different off of the wall. And he's talked about it. It's a hard thing to do, and that's so valuable for the D-backs to have, and it's so valuable for the Reds to have somebody who could play third base. And shortstop to where, uh oh, we have to move Matt McClain somewhere because we have to fit them, or we have to DH one of them, and we don't have to get that arm in the uh, on the field. I think you said it earlier. There's roughly nine or ten games left, depending on when you listen to this podcast, before the trade deadline hits. Yeah. Um, I think this this is just my opinion. I obviously don't know the inner workings of how Mike Hazen feels about this upcoming deadline, but I have a feeling that two or three weeks ago, the Diamondbacks felt like, okay, we could make a big splash here. We could go get a Marcus Stroman, which is going to take some resources. We could go get a former Cy Young winner with a year of control like Shane Bieber or Corbin Burns if he had been available. I felt like they could have made one of those big splashes two or three weeks ago when the team was clicking on, you know, everything offensively was working. Merrill Kelly was healthy. Mm-hmm. I feel like with where they're at now, you still got to make additions. You still have to be buyers at the deadline. But I feel like maybe their market of guys that they could go after is probably going to be the rentals. The one-year guys like Jordan Montgomery from the Cardinals, Jordan Hicks, the other Jordan for the Cardinals. Uh, I feel like that's probably the market that they're falling into now, the way that they're playing. I don't want to change my entire philosophy about the trade deadline just because of what's happened in the last week or two. But it does kind of put you in a position where, like, are we really going to give up 
our top prospects, Jordan Lawler, Drew Jones, Brandon Fought, are we going to give those guys up for a season where we're not even sure if we're the best team in our own division? It's a weird time right now to be the Diamondbacks. You don't do that unless that player happens to wear number 17 for the Angels right now. You're going to throw the Diamondbacks in the Shohei Otani race? <laughs> I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Uh, I don't think they'll do it, and I don't think it's necessarily the smartest thing in the world to do. But man, can you imagine just two months of having him the in the franchise? The best player maybe ever. The best player of a generation, maybe the most talented and unique player of all time. For two months, one playoff run, try to go all in for it. Okay, so do this exercise with me. What would it take? Everything. What does it start with? The top piece that would have to be in that deal. Well, ESPN did uh, sort of hypothetical trades for Otani, and they're centered around Lawler, Human Lin, Caccioni, and Alec Thomas. So that was ESPN's version of it. I'm not sure that gets it done. I, th- I think it makes sense because those are a couple of players who are ready to contribute now or close to ready to contribute now. One in Lynn, who's kind of a high-end starting pitcher potentially down the road. So that makes sense, but I still think that there will be better offers out there potentially if a team is ready to do that. So that's like all your top it, prospects. It, it would that's your, hit you hard as far as your talent pool coming up to the majors for a couple of years. Right. It would hit you hard. So you, let, let, okay. That, that's the argument against it. Let's game this out then. You do it. You lose basically the top of your farm system. You lose Lawler, who's your best hitting prospect. Uh, you mentioned... Lynn, who's your probably second best pitching prospect at this point behind Lawler, uh, behind Fott, who hasn't been very good at the major league level. So right. there's that, too. What was the other hitter you mentioned in that deal? Uh, they had uh, Thomas in there as like a major Alec league Alec Thomas? Yeah. Okay. I could see that. I mean, if you're getting Otani, Alec Thomas isn't going to stop that. Um, I'm fine with that deal to get Otani. It's a fair deal. The problem is, what do the Diamondbacks look like next year? Well, that's the whole because you're not getting Otani in free agency. That's the whole conundrum of this debate. It's like the cons are you're selling a lot of depth and potential firepower for the next couple of years for right now, and you know it's going to end. The pro is you are now in contention for a World Series in a way that you haven't been in 20 years, and you you have a rotation of Gallon, Kelly, Otani. And then you can go Henry, in whatever order. By Henry the way. Nelson, yeah, obviously Otani. Otani's kind of yeah, yeah. And then your lineup, you could lead off Corbin, go Otani two, Cattell three, Christian four. At that point, yeah, like you can you know mix your top and match five. It, but yeah, the top six are going to be unbelievable in that lineup. So that's sort of now. I think everybody is going to everybody who thinks they're a borderline contender is might give the Angels a phone call. It's unclear whether or not they will sell. They're one game over 500. They're five games out of a playoff spot, and they've been playing better baseball out of the All-Star break. But if they do, and if the Dimebacks have a feeling like he can go to the Dodgers next year, and then they have to deal with him, against him, for the next however many years. He'd go to the Giants or the Padres. That's kind of out of your control, though. It is. But if you can get him for one run where you go all in on it, and you give yourself the best opportunity to win a championship maybe you've ever had with the talent on your team, is that something that would be worth it? So That's, that, that's the debate. Yeah. So and I it have may no... not matter because they may not sell him anyway, and other teams may blow out the, the offer. Like, the Orioles could give a god offer and get Otani on their baseball team. If that was the deal, I don't have a problem with 
uh, is it Slade Sacconi or I don't know how to pronounce the last name. I assume yeah. it was Sacconi. I don't know. It is. Uh, Lynn is probably their best pitching prospect, not named Fought. He, he, he's a lefty, right? He is, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Something that they certainly could use in the major league level. Lawler is interesting because he is your uber prospect. He's a top five prospect in baseball. Plays shortstop, super fast, tons of power. Could be awesome like Trey prospect. Turner. Yeah, awesome prospect. Love Jordan Lawler. Don't want to give him up. But you could make the case that with Geraldo Perdomo being an all-star at age, what is he, 23? He's 23, yeah. And with having so much control over Perdomo, you do kind of have a little bit of extra leverage there with Lawler. I mean, you could lose Lawler, and in theory, you're okay. You still have Perdomo if he continues to play at the level he's played this season. They just drafted Tommy You're at Troy. least all right. Okay, how far is he? Obviously, they just drafted him. Two so, years, three two, years? Two, three years. He was a college bat, but they like him at shortstop. And Otani's only going to be around for two months. Correct. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to weigh these things. No, that, that's but, the whole, that's why the D-backs specifically, because like, I've heard a million mock trades to the Dodgers or to the Yankees or to the I don't think the, the Dodgers Orioles would trade for like that. I don't think so, because I think they have they a decent chance them. to sign them. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But like, I think the Dimebacks are kind of an interesting and kind of fun debate. I don't think it happens. I still don't think he gets traded. But it's, it's kind of fun to think about a team that knows it's going to be a rental and kind of weighs the decision, is it worth it for this run? to get the best player they've ever seen on your baseball team, sell the tickets, sell the merch, just have the craziness come to Phoenix for this little run that's going to cost you significant talent down the road. I don't know. It's a good debate. Yeah. I don't know if Ken Kendrick would go for it. I mean, he would love the attention. Don't get me wrong. And and to have the attention without having to pay the money, that's another way of looking You're at it. You're not paying him much for the rest You're of the season. You're not paying that much. Yeah. Um, but you're losing a lot in prospects, and I I don't know what the philosophy there for Mike Hazen and you know the rest of the front office is. I I don't know because I'm okay with losing Alec Thomas if it means you're getting Otani. I'm not okay with losing Alec Thomas in some deal for nothing. I've I've even in my mind I've that I've said to myself, okay, I could lose Alec Thomas or Jake McCarthy if you got like a really good controllable reliever for a long period of time. I can mm-hmm. I can work my way into that conversation. Like we talked about Ron Marinaccio before as a guy that I really love. Trading major league talent. It's hard. For a reliever. It's hard. Kind of hard to think about, especially when you look at some of the market with some of the relievers. I mean, Chapman went for a couple of prospects, not a couple of top prospects. Shintaro Fujinami just got traded for a 26-year-old reliever. is having a very good season, but it's right. not like he's a 22-year-old future, you know, back-end guy. He's, he's 26. Right. So I feel like with the reliever market, it could be so hit or miss sometimes that... I'm I'm not comfortable trading. Hopefully the cost somebody, isn't that high. More of a known commodity at this point. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But if we're talking Otani, man, that ain't stopping me from getting Otani, Alec Thomas, mm-hmm. or or McCarthy, or whatever it ends up. If being. they're gonna fire sale, then ask for uh, Carlos Estevez too. I don't know that this deal gets it done though, because I'm like you. I don't. I don't think Artie Moreno wants to be remembered as the guy that gave away the best player of a generation. No, it would have to be a team like Baltimore who has like. Next dozen, level like prospects, a, like a dozen top 100 prospects or whatever it is, and Jordan they come in Westberg. with like Kowser and uh, Heston Kerstad and just like all these top 100 guys. West Jordan Westberg, that's another guy. Yeah, um, it would have to be a. I feel like it have to be an offer like that where it's a just a bunch of guys to refill the farm system because theirs isn't great. Yeah. I could definitely see that being the case. So it's fun to talk about. It's fun to dream. We have we have ten more days to talk about hypothetical Otani trades. So how we crazy had to get this would in. it be? How how <laughs> unbelievable would it be if the Diamondbacks acquired Shohei Otani in the same year that the Phoenix Suns acquired Kevin Durant? 
Kevin Durant is arguably the Shohei Otani of the NBA. I mean, like, he's one of the greatest scorers of the basketball of all time. Yeah. He's a freak, and I mean that in a positive. He is seven feet tall, moves like a guard, shoots like a guard, rebounds like forwards do. I mean, it's that would be insane. The parallels of we will all look back 20, 30 years from now and be like, do you remember 2023 in this market when they went and acquired Otani and we got Kevin Durant? I mean, I know that the, the playoff run didn't go the way they hoped, but I mean, we'll see what happens in this next season. That would be a year to remember if they went and did both of those. Like Randy Johnson acquisition level for the Diamondbacks, if not even better. What does that do just as far as how players see the market? Especially if it, what if they get Otani and make a deep playoff run? Well, look at how Kevin Durant changed how NBA players view this market. I, I think even a year, two years ago, the Suns go into the offseason with just a bunch of minimum contracts to offer. I don't think a lot of people want to play here. With even with Devin Booker and Chris Paul, I don't I don't think a lot of people take that deal. But then you go and get Kevin Durant, and all of a sudden it's like Katie wanted to be here. Bradley Beal wanted to be here. If Shohei Otani showed some sort of love for the Valley, even in his short term two months here, that would be huge. I think you're right. It would definitely change the narrative because I don't think a lot of people view the Diamondbacks as a destination. I mean, the ballpark's not special. It's not all that great. The organization hasn't really done much since 2020, uh, 2001. It's been over 20 years. So, yeah, that would be something else, man. All right, let's wrap it up by talking about the upcoming schedule. We did talk about the Cincinnati Reds, three games to finish out the road trip. Wait, uh, do you want to do you want to mention Lucas Giolito briefly? Oh, yeah, we should do Just that. Just briefly, because there was a report from John Morosi that the Diamondbacks inquired yeah. about him. Sources say the D-backs have inquired about Lucas Giolito. This is a guy that I think is going to be, um, he's already being talked about like he's a L.A. Dodger already. He's an L.A. guy. <laughs> The Dodgers make a ton yeah. of sense because they've had a lot of injuries in their rotation. They need a starter. But the Diamondbacks are in a similar position where with Merrill Kelly injured and some of the rookies not performing super well, Zach Davies struggling lately, uh, Lucas Giolito might be a fit for the Diamondbacks. He's a rental. He's 28 years old at this point, And he's had multiple seasons where he's been a Cy Young candidate. I think uh, it was three years in a row where he finished in the top 11. And in the American League since the start of 2019... I think he's fourth in war as far for starting pitchers. He has pedigree, so he brings that to you. This year hasn't been his best, but it's been a step up from last year. He's got a 3.96 ERA. That has been, if we talked about this last week, we would talk about it differently because he just gave up eight runs uh, in a start against the Mets. So it was like a 3-4 something, and now it's at 3.96. How it goes, he could have two more great starts, and it could be back down to 3-7. Um, he's having a fine year. He's not going to, if if you get him... He won't come up to be the ace, but again, veteran guy who's been mostly healthy this season, started 30 games last year, 31 games before that. He's been a workhorse, and he could be a totally solid number three guy who has pitched in big games before. So that's the argument for getting him, and you take him away from potentially the Dodgers. Yeah, I So hate that's to... why it makes sense, but there's a lot of guys, and uh, Gambo tweeted this, that there's been a, there are a lot of one-year rental guys that the D-backs have checked in on. We just don't have names, and now we have a name of somebody who they checked in on. That's the thing is people always talk about, like, why aren't the Diamondbacks talking about this or that? And it's like, well, they evaluate everything. If you're not, you're not doing your job. Yeah. 
So they've looked at a lot of different scenarios. I'm not surprised Lucas Giolito is one of them. He's one of the best rental pitchers available. Mm-hmm. And the White Sox have made it abundantly clear, like, he's going to get traded. Like, I feel really strongly that Lucas Giolito is going to get moved. Just because of where that organization is at in a division that could be winnable for them as early as next season. I mean, that's how I feel about the White Sox. And they have talent. Dylan Cease, incredible talent. Uh, Luis Robert, incredible talent. Eloy Jimenez, incredible talent. They've got talent. It's just they have a couple of guys with one-year contracts that are expiring. Tim Anderson is another guy that could get moved. I've seen a lot of people mocking up the idea of moving Anderson and Giolito to the Dodgers because they also kind of have a need at shortstop. Although Tim Anderson has not been very good. No, it's been a down year, but you're you're banking on upside there. Um, The White Sox as a whole have a ton of guys to, like, check in on potentially oh for sure if Giolito gets dealt somewhere else could you check in on Lance Lynn as a back-end guy he's not having a great season but but if he's gonna be your fifth guy yeah what I about, trust him more than Davies probably what about Kendall Graveman for the bullpen what about Aaron Bummer for the bullpen and Aaron Bummer's numbers are remarkable because he has a seven ERA right now in 38 games but his FIP is 2.4 hmm. he's had a bunch of games where kind of the floor has fallen out and, you know, bad defense behind him, a lot of things go wrong. And he's had a lot of outings where it's looked really good, and he's looked like Aaron Bummer. So that's an option as, like, a high-risk, high-reward. They have a bunch of guys who you can potentially check in on, so that's a team to keep an eye on. And if it's Giolito, could you get him and a reliever? Maybe. He's one mean, of the only teams where you could really do that. It's funny. You talk about Bummer in a way that I kind of viewed the Shintaro Fujinami trade, where he goes from the A's to the Orioles. Fujinami, if you just look at the base numbers, I mean, his ERA has got to be through the roof because of the way he started the season. Yeah, it's high. I mean, at one point in time, he was the worst, statistically, the worst pitcher in Major League Baseball early in the season. But that was when he was a starter. He's now in the bullpen. And in his last, I think it's like eight, last 18 innings or so, he's got like a 2.45 ERA, something like that. So I think the Diamondbacks might have to be in a market for a player like that, where the base numbers don't look too good. So the price comes down. But ultimately, if you look at the last couple of weeks, couple of outings, you might be getting something kind of special at the right time. I think that's probably more likely the trade you get for the Diamondbacks than, say, like a big splashy trade. Sure. For Bummer, it's interesting. So he's given up runs in 11 of 38 outings. So it's 27 outings where he's been shut out. But like, you know, he gave up six runs and four runs and three runs. They come in bunches. Yeah. Yeah. But... Again, it's interesting to look at the FIP and wonder if, like, if you put that that arm left-handed with a lot of great stuff with the D-backs defense, how does it change? Yeah, and then the argument is, do you need a left-hander? Because you have left-handers. You have Chafin. I just think you need, you need options back there. Yeah, you do, but you, you also you don't want to overload, right? There. That's true. I mean, I'd love to get a really good righty, but, I mean, there's nothing keeping the Diamondbacks from getting multiple relievers yeah. or multiple starters even. I mean, you don't want the cost to be prohibitive. You don't want to, you know, empty out the entire farm system to try to get two starters, two relievers, a right-handed outfield bat, and a third baseman. I'm not saying they're going to go out and do five trades, but could I see them get one starter and two relievers and call it a trade deadline? Yeah, I could see that. I could feasibly see that. So it is going to be interesting to see. We'll probably have one, at least one more podcast before the trade deadline rolls around. And um, this is about the time I expect rumors to start swirling. Um, we've seen... The Chapman trade. A couple seen. have trickled in, but we haven't gotten anything crazy yet. Yeah, nothing nothing wild. Anasis Cabrera got traded? I don't even think I saw that. It was today. Wasn't he? De- he was DFA'd. Yeah, but they, and they, they got they a deal done with uh, Toronto. 
Oh, interesting. I didn't even see that one. I'm sure that wasn't for much in return, seeing as how they were going to DFA him anyway. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that as the trade deadline uh, comes around the bend. That's probably, what is that, 10 days away as uh, August 1st is the deadline these days. All right. uh, Happy Ellie De La Cruz versus the Diamondbacks and uh, Corbin Carroll week. Uh, We're going to keep our eyes on the upcoming series against the Reds. For my friend Alex Weiner, I'm Steve Zinsmeister. You've been listening to the Ain't No Thing podcast here at ArizonaSports.com and on the Arizona Sports app.